Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. I wouldn't really call what's happened now an investigation. It's essentially a highly chaperoned, highly curated study tour. Study tour? Study tour. Everybody around the world is imagining this is some kind of full investigation. It's not. This group of experts only saw what the Chinese government wanted them to see. So here's a little bit of a jump. I mean, that's incredible. <laughs> There's a lot of incredible things going on at Boston Dynamics. A cutting-edge robotics company that 60 Minutes has been trying to get inside of for years. This is inside Atlas's brain, and it shows its perception system. It's going to use that vision to adjust itself as it goes running over these blocks. Dave Kindred is among the best ever to write about sport in America, and he's covered them all. Ali, Tiger, Martina, and Michael. Then, after 50 years, he decided to repair to the bleachers and, how's this for a headline, cover girls' high school hoops. You know, I loved seeing them play, and why should they be ignored in high school athletics? And plus, they don't pout. They don't bitch. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm John Wertheim. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories and more tonight on 60 Minutes. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. 
Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This past Friday, a long-anticipated and much-debated report by the World Health Organization was delayed again. It was supposed to be a kind of post-mortem on a trip to China by a WHO-led team of international scientists, which took place earlier this year. The question, how did SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, originate? Among the leading theories examined, was it accidentally leaked from a lab in Wuhan, or did it come from infected animals in a wet market there? The WHO inquiry was far from comprehensive because, as it has done since the beginning of the outbreak, the Chinese government withheld information. I wouldn't really call what's happened now an investigation. It's essentially a highly chaperoned, highly curated study tour. Study tour? Study tour. Everybody around the world is imagining this is some kind of full investigation. It's not. This group of experts only saw what the Chinese government wanted them to see. Jamie Metzl, former NSC official in the Clinton administration and member of a WHO advisory committee on genetic engineering, is one of more than two dozen experts, including virologists, who signed an open letter earlier this month calling for a new international inquiry with a return to China. The letter says the WHO team did not have the independence or access to carry out a full and unrestricted investigation, specifically into a possible accidental leak from a laboratory at the Wuhan Institute of Virology in the city where the first outbreak occurred. We would have to ask the question, well, why in Wuhan? To quote Humphrey Bogart, of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, why Wuhan? What Wuhan does have is China's level four virology institute with probably the world's largest collection of bat viruses, including bat coronaviruses. I had seen that the World Health Organization team only spent three hours at the lab. While they were there, yeah. they didn't demand access to the records and samples and key personnel. That's because of the ground rules China set with the WHO, which has never had the authority to make demands or enforce international protocols. It was agreed first that China would have veto power over, over who even got to be on the mission. Secondly... And WHO agreed to that. WHO agreed to that. On top of that, the WHO agreed that in most instances, China would do the primary investigation and then just share its findings no. with these international experts. So these international experts weren't allowed to do their own primary investigation. Wait, you're saying that China did the investigation and showed the results to the committee and that was it? Pretty much that Whoa. was it. Not entirely, but pretty much that was it. Imagine if we had asked the Soviet Union to do a co-investigation of Chernobyl. It doesn't really make sense. China had ruled out a lab accident long before the WHO team arrived at the airport in Wuhan on January 14th and were greeted by people in full PPE gear. The team included some of the world's leading experts on how viruses are transmitted from animals to humans. 
But even though there have been accidental lab leaks of viruses in China in the past that have infected people and killed at least one, no one on the team was trained in how to formally investigate a lab leak. They were there for a four-week mission, but two of those weeks were spent holed up at this hotel in quarantine. Once out, they had some tense exchanges with their counterparts, a team of Chinese experts, over their refusal to provide raw data. Are you getting the access you need? If the virus originated in animals, one of the mysteries has been how did it travel the thousand miles from the bat caves in southern China to Wuhan? The WHO team thinks it found the answer. What we found as part of this WHO mission to China is that there is a pathway. Peter Dajak, a member of the WHO team and an expert on how animal viruses jump to humans, has worked on previous viral outbreaks, including in China. He says the pathway leads not to the lab in Wuhan, but from wildlife farms in southern China directly to the wet market in Wuhan, the Huanan seafood market. The theory is that somehow that virus got from a bat into one of these wildlife farms, and then the animals were shipped into the market, and that they contaminated people while they were handling them, chopping them up, killing them, whatever you do before you cook an animal. Wild animals? Yeah. These, like these, what? They're traditional food. Civets, these are like ferrets. There's also an animal called a ferret badger. Rabbits, which we know can carry the virus, those animals were coming into the market from farms over a thousand miles away. Were you able to test any of the animals found in the Wuhan market for the virus? Well, the China team had done that, and they found a few animals left in freezers. They tested them, they were negative. But the fact that those animals are there is the clue. But there's no uh, direct evidence that any of those animals were actually infected with the bat virus. Correct. Now what we've got to do is go to those farms and investigate, talk to the farmers, talk to their relatives, test them, see if there were spikes in virus there first. So the team doesn't actually know if any of the farmers or the truckers were ever infected. No one knows yet. No one's been there, no one's asked them, no one's tested them. That's to be done. Despite those unanswered questions, the WHO team and their Chinese counterparts all agreed that this hypothesis of a pathway from bat caves to butcher shops like these is the most likely explanation. Something like 75% of emerging diseases come from animals into people. We've seen it before. We've seen it in China with SARS. Is the lab leak theory any more or less speculative than the, your pathway? For an accidental leak that, that then led to COVID to happen, the virus that causes COVID would need to be in the lab. They never had any evidence of a virus like COVID in the lab. They never had the COVID-19 virus Not in prior that to lab? the outbreak, no. Absolutely. No evidence of that. Jamie Metzl begs to differ, pointing to the lab's own reports that it sent field researchers to the bat caves who brought back samples with viruses. We know that among those viruses, one of them is the virus that is genetically 
most related to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. But most related isn't the same, right? Yes, exactly. But we do know that there were nine viruses, at least, that were brought back, and it's extremely possible uh, that among these viruses is a virus that's much more closely related to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And when I put all those pieces together, I said, hey, wait a second, this is a real possibility we need to be exploring it. The pathway yeah. that Peter Daszak and the team have come up with, now that sounds plausible. Oh, it's, it's certainly plausible. Very seriously plausible. Yeah. No, it is plausible. Let's just say that that theory is correct. You would have had an outbreak perhaps in southern China where they have those animal farms. You may have seen some kind of evidence of an outbreak along the way. And there wasn't? There wasn't. But listen, your theory is also full of holes. I wouldn't say it's full of holes, but it's incomplete. That's why we need access to the data in order to prove one hypothesis for another. Metzl says Peter Daszak has a conflict of interest because of his longtime collaboration with the Wuhan lab. I'm on the WHO team for a reason. And, you know, if you're going to work in China on coronaviruses and try and understand their origins, you should involve the people who know the most about that. And for better or for worse, I do. He says the team did look into the leak theory during a visit with lab scientists and deemed it extremely unlikely. We met with them, we said, do you audit the lab? And they said, annually? Did you audit it after the outbreak? Yes. Was anything found? No. Do you test your staff? Yes. No but you're one was... just taking their word for it. Well, what else can we do? There's a limit to what you can do. And we went right up to that limit. We asked them tough questions. They weren't vetted in advance. Uh, and the answers they gave, we found to be um, believable, um, correct, and convincing. But weren't the Chinese engaged in a cover-up? They destroyed evidence. They punished scientists who were trying to give evidence on this very question of the origin. Well, that wasn't our task, to find out if China had covered up the origin issue. No, no, I know. Issue. I'm just saying, doesn't that make you wonder? We didn't see any evidence of any um, false reporting or cover-up in the work that we did in China. Were there Chinese government minders in the room? every time you were asking questions. There were Ministry of Foreign Affairs staff in the room throughout our stay, absolutely. They were there to make sure everything went smoothly from the China side. Or to make sure they weren't telling you the whole truth and nothing but you, the truth. You sit in a room with people who are scientists and you know what a scientific statement is and you know what a political statement is. Uh, we had no problem distinguishing between the two. Speaking of political statements, thing called the China virus. Geopolitics loomed over the inquiry with some tit-for-tats. Beijing said COVID-19 originated in the U.S. The Trump administration accused China of a cover-up. There was a direct order from Beijing to destroy all viral samples, and they didn't volunteer to share the genetic sequences. Matt Pottinger, the then Deputy National Security Advisor, quoting from declassified intelligence information, says Beijing also hid that several researchers at the Wuhan lab had come down with COVID-like symptoms and that the Chinese military was working with the lab. There is a body of research that's been taking place 
conducted by the Chinese military in collaboration with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which has not been acknowledged by the Chinese government. We've seen the data. I've personally seen the data. Why the military? Why were they in that lab? We don't know. It is a major lead that needs to be pursued by the press, certainly by the World Health Organization. Beijing is simply not interested uh, in allowing us to find the answers to those very pertinent questions. What the U.S. government does know, he says, is that the Wuhan lab director published studies about manipulating bat coronaviruses in a way that could make them more infectious to humans. And there were reports of lax safety standards at the lab. They were doing research specifically on coronaviruses that attach to the ACE2 receptors in human lungs, just like the COVID-19 uh, uh, virus. Is that a smoking gun? No, it's circumstantial evidence, but it's a pretty potent bullet point. <laughs> when, when you consider that the place where this pandemic emerged was a few kilometers away from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The lack of transparency has led to widespread criticism of the WHO for agreeing to China's demands. The one thing that I wish that the WHO had done is to pick up their megaphone and start screaming through it to demand that China be more transparent, that it open its border to allow American CDC officials and other experts from the WHO and around the world to come investigate and to help. After 15 months and more than 2.7 million deaths worldwide, it was hoped the team would provide some clarity on the origin of COVID-19. But the exercise ends with even more questions than it began with. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Boston Dynamics is a cutting-edge robotics company that spent decades behind closed doors making robots that move in ways we've only seen in science fiction films. They occasionally release videos on YouTube of their lifelike machines spinning, somersaulting, or sprinting, which are greeted with fascination and fear. We've been trying without any luck to get into Boston Dynamics' workshop for years, and a few weeks ago, they finally agreed to let us in. After working out strict COVID protocols, we went to Massachusetts to see how they make robots do the unimaginable. From the outside, Boston Dynamics headquarters looks pretty normal. Inside, however, it's anything but. If Willy Wonka made robots, his workshop might look something like this. There are robots in corridors, offices, and kennels. They trot and dance and whirl, and the 200 or so human roboticists who build and often break them barely bat an eye. That is Atlas, the most human-looking robot they've ever made. It's nearly five feet tall, 175 pounds, and is programmed to run, leap, and spin like an automated acrobat. Wow. 
Mark Rayburn, the founder and chairman of Boston Dynamics, doesn't like to play favorites, but definitely has a soft spot for Atlas. So here's a little bit of a jump. I mean, that's incredible. <laughs> Atlas isn't doing all this on its own. Technician Brian Hollingsworth is steering it with this remote control. But the robot's software allows it to make other key decisions autonomously. So really the robot is you know, doing incredible. all its own balance, all its own control. Brian's just steering it, telling it what speed and direction. Its computers are adjusting how the legs are placed and what forces it's applying in order to keep it uh, balanced. Atlas balances with the help of sensors, as well as a gyroscope and three onboard computers. It was definitely built to be pushed around. Good, push it a little bit more. It's just trying to keep its balance. You know, just like you will if I push you. Uh. And you can push it in any direction. You can push it from the side. Making machines that can stay upright on their own and move through the world with the ease of an animal or human has been an obsession of Mark Rayberts for 40 years. The space of time you've been working in is nothing compared to the time it's taken for animals and humans to develop. Some people look at me and say, oh, Raybert, you've been stuck on this problem for 40 years. Animals are amazingly good, and people, at, um, at what they do. You know, we're so agile, we're so versatile. We really haven't achieved what humans can do yet, but I think, I think we can. Raybert isn't making it easy for himself. He's given most of his robots legs. Why focus on, on legs? I would think wheels would be easier. Yeah, wheels and tracks are great if you have a prepared surface, like a road or even a dirt road. But people and animals can go anywhere on Earth uh, using their legs. And so that, you know, that was the inspiration. Ready? One, two. Some of the first contraptions he built in the early 1980s bounced around on what looked like pogo sticks. They appeared in this documentary when Raybert was a pioneering professor of robotics and computer science at Carnegie Mellon. He founded Boston Dynamics in 1992, and with CEO Robert Plater, has been working for decades to perfect how robots move. They developed this robot called Big Dog for the military, as well as this larger pack mule that could carry 400 pounds on its back. Experimenting with speed, they got this cheetah-like robot to run nearly 30 miles an hour. None of these made it out of the prototype phase, but they did lead to this. It's called Spot. Boston Dynamics made it not knowing exactly how it would be used, but the inspiration for it isn't hard to figure out. So Spot is a omnidirectional robot, so I can go forwards and backwards. This is crazy. <laughs> this is the real benefit of legs. Uh, legs give you that capability. That's Robert Plater, the CEO, and Hannah Rossi, a technician who works on spot. I'm not doing anything special to let it walk over those rocks. There you go. The controls are easier to use than you might expect. Does it have to come in straight You don't on? have to be perfect about it. Drive it close to wherever you want to go, and the robot will do the rest. Wow. In some ways, it's like driving a very sophisticated remote control car. What makes it different? Spot is really smart about its own locomotion. It deals with all the details about how to place my feet, what gait to use, how to manage my body, so that all you have to tell it is the direction to go to. And in some cases, you don't even have to do that. When signaled, Spot can take itself off its charging station and go for a walk on its own, as long as it's pre-programmed with the route. 
it uses five 3D cameras to map its surroundings and avoid obstacles. I mean, it is like something... Atlas has a similar technology. While we were talking in front of Atlas, this is how it saw us. This is inside Atlas's brain, and it shows its perception system. So what looks like a flashlight is really the data that's coming back from its cameras. And it, you see the white rectangles, that means it's identifying a place that it could step. And then once it identifies it, it attaches those footsteps to it, and it says, okay, I'm gonna try and step there. And then it adjusts its mechanics so that it actually hits those places when it's uh, running. All of that happens in a matter of milliseconds. And so it's gonna use that vision to adjust itself as it goes running over these blocks. Atlas costs tens of millions of dollars to develop, but it's not for sale. It's used purely for research and development. But Spot is on the market. More than 400 are out in the world. They sell for about $75,000 a piece. Accessories cost extra. Some Spots work at utility companies, using mounted cameras to check on equipment. Others monitor construction sites, and several police departments are trying them out to assist with investigations. Let's talk about the, the fear factor. When you post a video of Atlas or Spot doing something, a ton of people are amazed by it and think it's great, and there's a lot of people who think this is terrifying. The rogue robot story is a powerful story, and it's been told for 100 years, but it's fiction. Robots don't have agency. They don't make up their own minds about what their tasks are. They operate within a narrow bound of their programming. It is easy to project human qualities onto these machines. I think people do attribute uh, to our robots much more than they should because, you know, they haven't seen machines move like this before. And so they, they want to project intelligence and emotion onto that in ways that are fiction. In other words, these robots still have a long way to go. I mean, it's not C-3PO, it, it's not yeah. thinking. So let me tell you about that. There's a cognitive intelligence and an athletic intelligence. You know, cognitive intelligence is making plans, making decisions, uh, reasoning, and things like that. It's not doing that. It's mostly doing athletic intelligence, which is managing its body, its posture, its energetics. If you told it to travel in a circle in the room, it can go through the sequence of steps. But if you ask it to uh, go find me a soda, it's, it's not doing anything like that. Oh, no. Just picking an item off the floor can sometimes be a struggle for Spot. Enabling it to open a door has taken years of programming and practice. And a human has to tell it where the hinges are. Each time we add some new capability and we feel like we've got it to a decent point, that's when you push it to failure to figure out, you know, how good of a job you've really done. Kevin Blankisbohr is one of the lead engineers here, but at times he prefers a very low-tech approach to testing robots. You're pretty tough on robots. We think of that as, as just another way to push them out of their comfort zone. Failure is a big part of the process. When trying something new, robots, like humans, don't get it right every time. There might be dozens of crashes for every one success. How often do you break a robot? We break them all the time. I mean, it's part of our culture. We have a motto, build it, break it, fix it. To do that, Boston Dynamics has recruited roboticists with diverse backgrounds. 
There's plenty of PhDs, but also bike builders and race car mechanics. Bill Washburn is part of that pit crew. They all look pretty dinged up. Yeah. How often do these get need to get repaired? The biggest kind of failures for me are like the bottom part of the robot breaks off of the top part of the robot. <laughs> Seems like, like a big, big and failure. And the hydraulic uh-huh. hoses are the only thing holding it together. Recently, Raybird and his team decided to push their robots in a way they never had before. We spent at least six months, maybe eight, just preparing for what we were going to do. And then we started to get the technical teams working on the behavior. The behavior was dancing. All their robots got in on the act. The movements were cutting edge, but the music and the mashed potato were definitely old school. There are some people who see that and say, that can't be real. Nothing's more gratifying than hearing that. What's the point in proving that the robot can do the mashed potato? This process of you know doing new things with the robots lets you generate new tools, new approaches, new understanding of the problem uh, that takes you forward. But man, isn't it just fun? But I mean, it's, it costs a lot of money. It took 18 months of your time. I think it was worth it. <laughs> Whether it'll be worth it to Boston Dynamics' new owners is less clear. A lot of detail. The South Korean car maker Hyundai has agreed to buy a majority stake for more than a billion dollars. It'll be Boston Dynamics' third owner in eight years. There's pressure to turn their research into revenue. And Boston Dynamics hopes this new robot will help. It's called Stretch and is due to go on sale next year. This is the first time they've shown it publicly. Warehouse is is really the next frontier for robotics. Stretch may not be that exciting to look at, but it's built with a definite purpose in mind. It's got a seven-foot arm, and they say it can move 800 boxes an hour in a warehouse and work for up to 16 hours without a break. Unlike many industrial robots that sit in one place, Stretch is designed to move around. You can drive it around with a joystick, and at times that's the easiest way to get it set up. But once it's ready to go in a truck, and unload it, you hit go, and from there on, it's autonomous. And it'll keep finding boxes and moving them until it's all the way through. This generation of robots is going to be different. They're going to work amongst us. They're going to work next to us in ways where we help them, but they also take some of the burden from us. The more robots are integrated into the workforce, the more jobs would be taken away. At the same time, you're creating a new industry. We envision a job we, we, we like to call the robot Wrangler. He'll launch and manage five to 10 robots at a time and sort of uh, keep them all working. Is there a robot you've always dreamt of making that you haven't <laughs> been able to do yet? A car with an active suspension, essentially legs, like, like a roller skating robot. And a robot like that, you know, could go anywhere on earth. That's one thing that uh, maybe we'll do at some point. But you know, really the sky's the limit. There's, there's all kinds of things we, can and will do. As with so many things Boston Dynamics does, it's hard to imagine how that would work. But then again, who'd have thought a bunch of metal machines would one day show us all how to do the mashed potato? It's one of the guiding principles of journalism. The reporter should never become the story. 
Every now and then, though, you find a reporter's story too good not to tell. In 2018, Dave Kindred received the Penn ESPN Lifetime Achievement Award for Literary Sports Writing. It was intended as a final bit of punctuation on a gilded career. Little did the presenters know, Kindred was still churning out column after column, sweating deadlines, interviewing athletes after exhilarating wins and deflating losses. Kindred, though, wasn't setting up shop as he had for 50 years at Super Bowls, World Series games, Olympics, and title fights. No, he was scribbling away three rows up the bleachers inside high school gyms of central Illinois. And it would make for some of the most fulfilling work of Kindred's career. For more than a half century, Dave Kindred abided a simple sports writing rule. Be a reporter first and a writer second. On the sidelines or the back nine, he wanted to be there, find the story, and then paint a picture using words. Let's do the, the sports writer equivalent of back of the baseball card. Give, give me the numbers here. Uh, how many World Series have you been to? I became a columnist in 69, so went to almost all the World Series after that. How many Super Bowls have you been to? 40-something. What about the Masters? I've been to 52 Masters. First in 1967 and missed 1986 when nothing happened except Jack Nicholas won. <laughs> and that's the Red Smith Award. Unlike the athletes and teams they cover, sports writers aren't ranked. There's no scoreboard or leaderboard. And this is Dan Jenkins' medal. Oh, that's great. Won that too. Still, even in this subjective line of work, there are perennial all-stars and Hall of Famers. Say, Sports Illustrated's Frank DeFord and Red Smith of the New York Times whose Sunday column would arrive by train near Dave Kindred's childhood home of Atlanta, Illinois, a speck alongside Route 66. Kindred would race to the station, get a copy of the newspaper, and read every word. I studied them. You know, one of the things I've learned about writing is find out what you like, then figure out why you like it, and then do that. So why'd you like it? I like the rhythm of his words. Red didn't use, you know, kind of sports writer hackney words. He used words that uh, had a music to them. You're here in the middle of Illinois, and you're reading these dispatches about sports, but from all over the world? Yeah. Took me out of that second floor bedroom, you know, put me in the press box at Wimbledon. Kindred wrote what he saw and became one of the most influential sports columnists and authors of a generation. Name sports icons from the last half century, and rest assured Dave Kindred's covered them. To him, though, one athlete was the greatest. In 1966, Kindred was a cub reporter at the Louisville Courier-Journal, ordered by his boss to go find the outgoing, ascending local fighter. You meet Muhammad Ali for the very first time. That seems like a pretty big pivot point in your career. How would you think of it at the time? At the time, I just thought of it, this is a good story. You know, this is fun. Guy's a heavyweight champion of the world. It marked the first of more than 300 interviews with Ali, who christened Dave Kindred Louisville, forever Ali's hometown reporter. Kindred followed Ali's entire career, an entomologist, as it were, writing about the butterfly and the bee, sometimes in the strangest of places. I was trying to do a column on his entourage. Meanwhile, his suite, as always, was full of people. He waves at me, Louisville, come in here. So I go in there and I standing next to the bed. He raises up the corner of the sheets and says, get in. Well, I don't know what you do if the heavyweight champion of the world tells you <laughs> get in, but I did. You know, and one of us had on clothes. 
He saved that anecdote for a 2006 dual biography he wrote about Muhammad Ali and Howard Cosell. Dave Kindred moved on from Louisville to the Washington Post, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and the Sporting News. Kindred became one of those Hall of Famers. His writings are preserved in the library of his alma mater, Illinois Wesleyan University, where we unearthed this gem. After the death of the NBA player Pete Maravich, you wrote, an inelegant collection of bones, the skinny six foot five Maravich flailed his way down court, elbows and knees, sharp angles rearranging themselves, an Ichabod crane on the fast break, and you dared not blink. <laughs> That's pretty good. Kindred wrote that line 33 years ago. Where did you come up with that? No idea other than, you know, that's what he looked like. You want the reader to see the moment the way you see it. He would have kept at it, but for the sad and steady decline of both print media and the role of the general columnist. In 2010, Dave Kindred and his wife Cheryl, high school sweethearts in the 50s, figured it was time to return home to the flat abs of America, central Illinois. They'd sit by the pond outside their log cabin, read and watch sunsets. And when the cold whipped in winter, they, like a lot of folks downstate, would repair to the warmth of a local high school gym for entertainment. In their case, it was in Morton, Illinois, next town over from Peoria, to watch the Lady Potters. Went to a basketball game. And, you know, like the old war horse, I couldn't sit there and not write about what I saw. Kindred and his wife sat in the bleachers alongside parents, grandparents, and high schoolers, and his professional instincts kicked in. He offered to cover the Lady Potters for the team's website and post his accounts on Facebook as well. Search the post! Thank you very much! Let's go! But first, he wanted the blessing of the team's coach. He's, you know, Muhammad Ali and Olympics and Masters Golf and Super Bowls and Bobby Knight. And, and here I am, a, a small-town girls basketball coach. It's about patience. Take care of the ball. Bob Becker has been head coach of the Lady Potters since 1999. After some apprehension, who wants to get second-guessed by a hard-boiled journalist, he bought in. You know, after that initial shock and then getting to know who he really was, I mean, after a little bit of research, we've got the Michael Jordan of sports writing <laughs> falls in our lap. The scribe who once described an NBA player as Ichabod Crane on a fast break now called his new subjects the Golden State Warriors with ponytails. And there was something about girls basketball that particularly enthralled Kindred. I think I owed a little bit to Title IX. The, the women athletes, you know, I loved seeing them play. And why should they be ignored in high school athletics? The men's game is vertical. The girls' game is horizontal. They have to master the fundamentals. So it's much more fun to watch them. And plus, they don't pout. They don't bitch. For now, COVID has shrunk the season and the crowds in the Potter Dome. But Kindred's there, his gaze fixed on the action, listening in on huddles. But you gotta fight and scrap and hustle. After the buzzer, he's outside the locker room for a quote. So they had a basketball. Yes. Tell me about it. Which one? Albeit self-imposed, there is a deadline. So after driving home, he ends the day, as ever, in front of a keyboard. People stay up after the game waiting for that article to come out. 
they won't go to bed until they get to read it. So he's got deadlines to meet. He's not getting paid anything, but a, eventually it turned into a box of milk duds. You heard right. Kindred's negotiated compensation. Thank you, Rocky. I said, look, I'm a professional sports writer. I should be getting something for doing all this stuff for you. And he measured my talent and experience and good looks and said, how about a box of milk duds every game? And I said, deal. You drive a hard bargain, Kindred. <laughs> then in 2015, well, you might say the milk duds would turn into lifesavers. Apart from the sugar rush, what do you get out of this? Well, f the first five years, it was just the fun. Then things started happening as, the, as they do late in life. Had a grandson who died. My mother died three months later. The next year, my wife had a catastrophic stroke that left her an invalid who cannot communicate. You know, so even in the hospital, one of the players' mothers, I was debating whether I should leave my wife in the hospital unconscious and go to a Lady Potter's game. And the mother said, you got to go. You got to go. And she was right. You know, I went, you know, and uh, what started as fun became life-affirming. You know, it's just what I am. It's what I do. You're someone who is precise with his words, and, and you said, this team saved me. This team did save me. This team <laughs> became a community, became my friends. My life had turned dark. You know, they were light. And I knew that, that light was always going to be there, you know, two or three times a week. In return, Dave Kindred would chronicle the Lady Potter's four recent state championships. First flex, let's see. State champs and Lady Potter alums, Josie Becker, J.C. Warham, and Courtney Jones. When you guys were here playing, did, did you appreciate how cool a story this was? At the time, I didn't think like anything of it. Now looking back at it, it's actually really amazing that we've had this legendary writer come and capture all this special time that we've had in high school. What was it like getting interviewed by him? I was so nervous. I literally didn't really know he was that famous of a writer. And by the time I finally got interviewed, I was so excited. I was like, this is my chance. I finally done good enough. I get to talk about myself. Do you remember what you said? No, no. I, I think I blacked out, <laughs> to be honest. That's okay, since Kindred keeps all his notes, including quotes, and turns it into a commemorative book he publishes most seasons. I've written more than 300 games, probably more than 500,000 words. I've written more about that girls' basketball team than I've written about anything, including Ali. Dave Kindred going home and covering high school hoops is something akin to his former Washington Post colleagues, Woodward and Bernstein, uncovering corruption of small-town zoning boards. The Morton players appreciate the expert journalism as well as his awareness of the stubborn inequality between male and female athletes, as witnessed at this year's NCAA basketball tournament. Katie Krupa, Caitlin Cowley, Raquel Frakes, and Maggie Hobson are current potters. Where are your banners? Where's the big hanging banner that you get when you win a state title? If the boys had won a state title. Oh, it would, it would be, be everywhere. The town would literally celebrate for weeks. Do you guys all read his write-ups? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, I get a lot of texts from my grandparents and relatives, and it's always, I read Dave's article, heard you had a good game, or heard it was a physical game, or whatever. I think it's just, it's so special that someone that is so good at what he does 
wants to be here and write about us. He's just kind of always there with us. He grows with us, yeah. especially this season. Why do you think he's doing this? I think it's just his passion. Like, basketball is our passion. Man, I agree with Rock. I think it's his passion, you know. I think he wants to be doing it for as long as he possibly can, too. Come on, KO. She's right. Dave Kindred, now 79, knows that pitchers lose their fastball. Basketball players lose a step. Boxers, not least Ali, lose their crispness. The life cycle of the writer is more generous. Kindred recently finished a book that celebrated the life and mourned the death of his grandson, Jared. When Tiger Woods was injured in a car accident last month, Golf Digest leaned on Kindred for a column. Then there are his dispatches about the Lady Potters. I, I want to read you something we found that you wrote from the first game of this year was moving to us. We've lost so much that was so long familiar. Then the Potters gave us a gift. They played a game. Then you wrote the joy that high school athletes feel when every trip down the court is a trip toward possibility. Joy in these days, so long without joy. Yeah. That's why I do it. That's why I do it. Sports writing right there. Writers write. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Now an update of a story from last April called Outbreak Science. Bill Whitaker looked at researchers harnessing artificial intelligence and other technology to detect and track infectious diseases before they become pandemics. Dylan George, a scientist who tracked outbreaks for the Bush and Obama administrations, called for a government agency to forecast infectious outbreaks the way the National Weather Service forecasts storms. We need to think broadly about how we can move these things forward. This kind of a center would help us do that. This month, tucked within the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, is a provision establishing that forecasting agency. I'm Anderson Cooper. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Diva Adaris. 
what is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. 